Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. We're just concluding our studies on family and marriage. And uh, the one thing that we've, uh, we covered first, marriage in general, then we covered the wife's biblical role, now we're into the second week of the husband's role, and then when I get back uh, somewhere we'll cover uh, children. But as we looked at these uh, verses, we've really been, at least I've really been convicted as a husband these past couple weeks. And God is, has a sense of humor. He kind of brings us into situations where we have to practice what we preach. And uh, sometimes it's kind of funny how that works. But I, I want you to follow along as I read for you our text for this morning, Ephesians 5, verse 25, beginning there. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. We've been looking at the last uh, last time we got together. We looked at the first point there. The motive of love. And... We were instructed as men that, husbands, we should love our wives with a Christ-like love. It refers really to a sacrificial love. And when we went through that, it's the kind of love that God is. We saw that in 1 John 4, 8. The kind of love that God showed at Calvary, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. And also the kind of love that the Holy Spirit produces in Galatians 5. And so, first of all, we should love our wives with a Christ-like love. Now, we're never going to do that perfectly, but we should. That should be our goal. Well, the manner of love is that we should love our lives with our wives with a sacrificial love, a sacrificial love, and that is a command. He says there in verse twenty-five, "Love your wives, husbands." That's not an option. That basically indicates that no husband is exempt from this. And it also indicates that we have the capacity to do it, or God wouldn't have told us to, through the power of the Holy Spirit, of course. can't do it on our own. Um, And we also learned that true biblical love is a deliberate act. It's something we choose to do. It's not willy-nilly. It's not based on our emotions, whether we feel like loving in this way or not. Um, The Bible says that that's what we're called to do. And so when we love our our wives as Christ loved the church, and we love them sacrificially. Remember, that's what Jesus said. That's the kind of love that we should have as husbands toward our wife. Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to what? But to serve. 
I think some husbands have it backwards. They think somehow the wife is supposed to be the servant um, to the husband no matter what. Guess what, guys? They're not here to serve us. Now, of course, the Bible indicates that they're to be a helpmate to us. They're a helper, and we've talked about that when we first started this series. But there's another sense in which we're not to demand that kind of service from our wives. That's not going to get them to serve us more. Instead, we're to give of ourselves in self-sacrificing service to them. And you'd be surprised when you do that how much respect and how much love comes back from your wives. The husband that says, hey, woman, you know, your Bible says you need to serve me. That's not going to get you far. I'm just telling you. It's not going to get you anywhere, as a matter of fact, usually. And if it does get you anywhere, it's usually done begrudgingly on the wife's part. And, you know, wives are not a doormat. Um, they're our spouses, and we're called to love them with a Christ-like love, with a uh, self-sacrificing love. And then today we get to verse 26 and 27. Husbands, we are to love our, our wives with a sanctifying love. A sanctifying love. Look at what he says there in verse 26 and 27. We, we're to love our wives that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And she might be holy and without blemish. Paul, or, yeah, Paul is using an illustration here. And the third quality here of the love that we're commanded to have for our wives is a resemblance not only of the Christ-like love and a self-sacrificing love, but it's a sanctifying love. Now, how do we do this? It says that he might sanctify her. You look at the chronological order here in these verses. If you notice, it's, it's kind of drawing attention to Christ. He, we are his bride, by the way, and so there's an illustration there for us. And so as we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church, well, how did Christ love the church? Well, first of all, it says the first event there in verse 25 is that Christ gave himself up for the church. In other words, he died for the church. He died for the church. And a lot of husbands will say, oh, I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd die for my wife. But they're unwilling to live with them in understanding on a daily basis. Go figure. You know, but they'll give up their life. Um, so Christ died for the church. Secondly, we see there in verse 26 that he cleansed the church. By the washing of the word. Now notice I skipped sanctify there. And the reason I did that is because in the Greek, as it is in the English, it's a participle. Having cleansed throws that event before sanctification. In other words, having cleansed comes before the main verb sanctified over a period of time. So first Christ died for us. He died for the church. Then he cleansed the church. Now, what's that a reference to, that cleansing? What is he referring to? He's referring to the spiritual reality that happened the moment we were saved. Do you realize the moment you put your faith and trust in Christ, the moment you were transformed, the moment you were regenerated in Christ, you were cleansed? It's the same thing in Acts chapter 15, verse 9. We read there, God cleansed their hearts by faith. Or in Titus 3, 5, Paul writes, God saved us by the washing of regeneration. See, that's what this cleansing is referring to. It's a spiritual cleansing. It's a spiritual cleansing that occurs at the very moment of salvation. 
having cleansed them, he says. It's done. But the cleansing is illustrated and it's pictured really in our faith in the outward symbol of baptism. That's why he mentions water here. He says, having cleansed her by the washing of water. Now, it's not that baptism cleanses us when you get up here and get dunked in the tank. That doesn't wash your sins away. But he goes on and he tells us what does. Notice what he says. How do we get washed? He says, washed with the word. See, it's the word of God, beloved, that produces that cleansing of the heart. As the Spirit uses it. That's why it's so important when you're witnessing when you're out sharing your faith with others, that you're sharing Bible verses, that you're sharing the Word of God, that you're opening up your Bible and pointing to verses. You're not just willy-nilly making it up as you go along because the power is in the Word of God. And so Paul uses this expression here, having cleansed by the washing of the water with the Word to the spiritual cleansing that occurs at the moment of salvation. So if you're in Christ here today, You were cleansed in this way, completely cleansed. At the moment of salvation, the Spirit of God used the Word of God to give you and your soul a bath. Um, And the baptism is really a picture of that. It's It's a symbol of that reality. And so Christ died for the church, and then in the moment in time, he cleansed your heart if you've come to faith in Christ, that is. And the third part of that chronology there, in verse 26, it says that he might sanctify her. Now notice, you've been cleansed. Christ has embarked on a process of sanctifying you. That happens over a period of time. We're not what we should be yet. We won't be until glory. But sanctification is the process that God is Surely setting us apart more and more. He's making us more and more like his son each and every day. Practically, personally, in every way. He's making us more holy, you might say. Even though positionally we're completely holy in the eyes of God because we're his children and we've been completely cleansed. Practically, living out this faith down here, we're still in this sinful body. We're still in this sinful world. We're going to be tempted by the flesh, the world, and the devil. And sometimes we give in to that. Even though our sins are cleansed, this sanctifying process, slowly over a period of time, some of those sins we can set aside because God is doing that work in our heart. Um, And that's really been Christ's concern for the church all along is its sanctification, its holiness. All the way back in John 17, the passage is often called the high priestly prayer of Christ. It's really the longest recorded prayer of Christ we have in Scripture in John 17. And here's what he prays. He prays on that that night, the night of his crucifixion. He prays to the Father and he says, Father, sanctify them. Who's he talking about? He's talking about his disciples directly. He says, sanctify them in truth or by means of the truth. And he says, your word is truth. How are we sanctified? How are we set apart? By the word of God. And then he adds this in that verse. He says, and I'm not just praying for them, that is the 11 disciples that are gathered there, because Judas had already taken off. He said, I'm not just praying for these 11, but for all those who will believe through their word. Guess who that is? That's you. That's me. That's incredible when you think about it, that 
when Christ is praying here, he's not only praying for the 11 disciples, he's praying for everybody sitting in Grace Bible Church here today in 2019. And he's praying that we would be sanctified by means of the truth, all those who have genuinely put their faith and trust in Christ. And that's a consistent concern for Christ. In Titus 2.14, Paul was talking about the grace of God and how it appears and that it instructs us in how to live once it delivers us and saves us. And in verse 14, in Titus there, he describes Christ in this way. He gave himself for us. Now listen, to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. This is part of what Christ had in mind. You know, he didn't save you just to keep you out of hell. You understand that? He saved you in order to make you holy. But the question is, the important question really is why? Why does Christ desire and want us to be holy? Well, you can look all over the New Testament and find answers. But notice the answer given to us here in Ephesians 5. It's very interesting. He says in verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ wants us, desires us, to be holy for this reason. Now that's an amazing word picture when you think about it. The beautiful image here that's given to us in this verse really grows out of the marriage customs of the time that Christ lived in the first century. If you had lived in the first century, this would be the process whereby you would go through if you were going to get married. The thing that came first was the betrothal. And the betrothal was a more serious binding than like an engagement. You know, today people get engaged and they break it off or whatever. Well, this is a lot more serious than that. It was made in the presence of witnesses. And the man and the woman and their families were there. And they acknowledged that they all agreed in these arrangements that had been made for their marriage. Both the fact that the couples would get married, as well as how much the dowry would be and other aspects of the the wedding. Now, it wasn't the dowry. A lot of people think of a dowry as, you know, well, that's how much it costs to get the wife. Well, it wasn't that the wife was considered property, although in some cultures they were. It wasn't. It was simply an acknowledgement that the family was going to lose out on her productivity as being part of that family. She was no longer going to be part of that family, so there was going to be a price to be paid when she was taken away by her husband. And so the dowry was meant to help that family, the wife's family, make it through that time in the future years without their daughter there to help them in any way. And so they made this agreement, and the betrothal began with this ceremony with witnesses. And these are arrangements or agreements and And they're all fully agreed to with all these terms. And then God's blessing was pronounced upon the marriage. Now, between the the ceremony and the wedding itself was an interval of time. But from the day the betrothal began, from the day of that ceremony, they were considered legally man and wife, even though they weren't allowed to consummate the marriage. If they wanted to end the relationship at that point, it required a divorce, a certificate of divorce. 
even though they still lived separately. They weren't allowed to, to have any personal relationships at this time. And sometimes um, there's a period of time there that could, this could go on. Um, and the, the reason they did that, history tells us, is that sometimes, you know, even when we got married, you know, we had to plan it out. We just didn't say, okay, do you want to get married? Sure, let's go. No, it's like, okay, we got to save up some money, we got to pay for the wedding, we got to get all this stuff taken care of. And so, particularly, the man needed to prepare a place for him and his new bride to live. Now, in the ancient world, it was typical for a man to actually add on to his father's house, or at least maybe on his father's property, and construct a home for him and his new bride. That's how it worked. And that happened during that interval of time. So they got betrothed, they got engaged, but then all this activity was going on in between. And it allowed time for these arrangements to be made. And when everything was ready, then the date for the wedding would be set. And the final part of the process was the preparation and procession for the wedding feast, which celebrated the wedding itself. So the time and date would have been announced at this time. The bride would begin preparing herself just as today. The groom would go out and get a good, clean set of clothes. And then he'd be accompanied by his friends and he would make a procession. It usually happened at night. So they would go with torches through the streets of the village in which they lived, singing, dancing. And they would make a procession with the groom and his friends to the house of the bride. And when they arrived there, they would take her with them, and the procession would make its way back through the streets, back to the home that they would eventually live in, back to his father's house, usually. And when they would arrive that evening, the actual marriage itself, the marriage was consummated that night as well, and there was a great feast that began that evening. Now, sometimes these feasts could last weeks, (laughs) Weeks, not just a day. I mean, think about that. You know, I mean, I know some of you have had your daughters married off. Can you imagine planning for a wedding that's going to last weeks? <laughs> Entertaining everybody for up to a week or maybe two weeks? You thought your child's wedding was costly. Well, that's the background of what Paul is telling us here, husbands, in verse 27 of Ephesians chapter 5. The church, that's us, we have been betrothed to Christ. Christ has submitted a significant dowry. What was his dowry? Himself, his life. Uh, Remember that hymn we, we sing, From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. And now we live in the period of the interval. We have been betrothed to Christ, but the wedding feast and the wedding have not yet come. It's time for us to begin preparing for his coming. He's going to come and he's going to take him take us to be his very own. Well, how do we prepare? Well, it's interesting in Revelation 19:7, it says the bride prepares or makes ready herself. See, there's a sense in which we contribute to this process of preparation. We don't just lay back on our laurels and wait for Jesus to come back. 
There's also a sense in which spiritual leaders come around us and help us to prepare, like family or friends would do for a wedding. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul says this, I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you a pure virgin. So there's a sense in which we prepare ourselves. There's another sense in which spiritual members of our friends and leaders come along and help us to make holy. But Ephesians chapter 5 says, ultimately, Christ himself is the one who must prepare us. It's even more emphatic in the, the original language. It's that he himself might present to himself the church in all her glory. Christ wants a glorious bride, a bride dressed in splendor and prepared for the occasion. He doesn't want to see a spot of gravy on the dress or a wrinkle in the clothing. Not a single blemish that would distract from the beauty of his bride. And Christ himself, as the groom prepares his bride... He wants us to be holy and blameless. See, we can't prepare ourselves for the wedding. We can't sanctify ourselves. Christ ultimately has to do that. And when he's done, the church, each and every one of us individually, will be without moral or spiritual stain, none whatsoever. I mean, that's an incredible truth when you think about it. There's coming a day... When we will be his bride, without spot or blemish or anything that mars our characters. That's the picture that Paul is painting for us here, husbands. We have been betrothed to Christ. You're part of the bride of Christ if you've trusted in Christ. And right now Christ is in the Father's house. Remember what he says? He says he's going to go and what? Prepare a place for us in John 14. That's what he's talking about. I go to my Father and I go to prepare a place for you so that I may come and receive you to myself. It's a picture of that ancient wedding. He says, I'm going to fix you a place. You're my betrothed and I'm coming to get you again. He's making us more sanctified at the same time he's preparing a place for us. He's making us presentable to be the bride that we ought to be, holy and spotless, without blemish or spot. He's going to come with a grand procession to get us and to take, him to us, take us to himself. And in Revelation 19, 7 and 8, it describes the wedding and the wedding feast. You can read that on your own. But Paul comes back to kind of a practical point here. Paul's point relative to marriage is this, basically, men, listen, Our love for our wives is to be like Christ's love for his church. He comes back to that. The greatest concern for our wives must be for their sanctification. That's what should weigh heavy on our hearts. Should be their spiritual well-being. William Hendrickson said it this way, Husbands should love their wives for what they are, and they should also love them Sufficiently to help them become what they should be. The question I ask myself, very convicting, do I love my wife like this? Do I love my wife with a sanctifying love? How do we demonstrate that? 
What does that look like? Well, a couple quick things. First of all, we can demonstrate a sanctifying love by being holy ourselves, by being sanctified ourselves. So you can't lead your wife somewhere where you've never been. That's impossible. And yet the responsibility falls on us as godly men to be everything that he calls us to be. We can't help them grow in spiritual sanctification if we ourselves are not growing. Secondly, another practical implication is this. We must do nothing that would expose our wives to sin and temptation. We must do nothing that would expose them to sin and temptation. That's why it's important to realize when you're, before you're married, we have some single ladies here today, before you're married, if you're dating someone, if, if their goal is your sanctification, that's a great thing. But if, your goal, if their goal is to get you to compromise, to tempt you with sin, to try to have you become intimate before the marriage, guess what? He doesn't love you. At least he doesn't love you the way the Bible says that he should love you. That's a selfish, unbridled lust. True biblical love is a sanctifying love. It's a genuine concern for the spiritual well-being of someone else. And that continues, not just before you're married, but after. Our love is to be a sanctifying love. The third practical implication of sanctifying love is that we must do everything within our power to promote their spiritual growth. That dovetails with what we said before, we must be the spiritual leader of our homes. If you want to have a sanctifying influence on your wife, it means that you have to first take responsibility for being the spiritual leader. I mean, men, we're the ones that should be responsible in making sure that our family is involved in the life of the church and that we're here for corporal worship, corporate worship on Sundays. We should be the ones who are leading the regular time with our wives and family, studying the Bible and praying together. Maybe you say, well, you know what? I just don't know how to do that. Well, there's a lot of resources out there. Ask somebody. Figure it out. That's your role. I mean, unfortunately, in many Christian homes, it's the wife who ends up being the spiritual leader by default because the husband's nowhere to be found. Spiritually, that is. Think about it, men. What what message does that send to your children? When you've abdicated your spiritual leadership in your home, especially to boys. What message does that send your boys? It tells them, you know what? The Christian faith is fine for women. But real men don't need that. That's a dangerous message. And finally, if we're going to love our wives with sanctifying love, we must be the spiritual leaders of our wives. In 1 Corinthians 14, 34, it says, the women are to keep silent in the church. It's dealing with the gift of tongues here. doesn't mean they're not allowed to speak at all, for they're not permitted to speak, it says, but are subject, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, guess where? Let them ask their own husbands at home. 
For it's improper for a woman to speak in the church. Now what's going on here? The context of telling women that they're to keep silent in the corporate worship of the church. Paul tells women not to ask their elders if they have questions about their spiritual growth or whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. But he says, you know what? You should ask your husbands first. And the implication there is, guess what? The husband should know the answer. Or at least be willing to work hard to find it. Douglas Wilson said this about a husband's role. A man may not be a vocational theologian. In other words, he doesn't get paid to to practice theology. But in his home, he must be a resident theologian. And, And that's a requirement if you're going to be a biblical, spiritual leader in your home and in your marriage. Well, the fourth thing here you notice, not just a sanctifying love, but a nourishing love. He says in verse 28, he says, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own body, he he who loves his wife loves himself. It's important that we realize, he says in verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes nourishes it. That word means to feed, to feed your wife spiritually and physically. It means that you provide for your wife, for your household. And he draws the conclusion, for no one ever hated his own flesh or body. And guess what? Remember the first week when you get married, guess what? You're not two different people anymore. You're one. Charles Hodge writes this, he says, It is just as unnatural for a man to hate his wife as it would be for him to hate himself or his own body. A man may have a body which does not altogether suit him. He may wish it were handsomer, healthier, stronger, or more active. Still, it's his body. It is himself, and he nourishes it and cherishes it as tenderly as though... It were the best and loveliest a man ever had. I mean, when you look at a man looking in a mirror, usually they're, doesn't matter how ugly they are, (laughs) they're still admiring themselves. Why would they be looking in a mirror otherwise? Hodge goes on to say, he says, so a man may have a wife whom he could wish to be better or more beautiful or more agreeable, Still, she is his wife. And by the constitution of nature and ordinance of God, a part of himself, in neglecting or ill-using her, he violates the laws of nature as well as the law of God. You know, that's such an important point for us to realize, men, that we need to nourish our wives. What does it mean to nourish? It, It basically means to feed. In Ephesians 6, 4, it's the same word. It's not used a lot here in the New Testament. But it's used in chapter 6, verse 4, where it's translated, bring them up. Bring them up. It means to feed in the way that you are providing for the needs as if you would provide for your own, own body. But it also speaks of the responsibility of providing for your wife's physical needs, all of her needs, to nourish them, to care for them, to feed them, to take care of her physical needs. 
And there's a lot of other verses that we could speak of that refers to that. But practically, what are some practical implications of of this nourishing love? There are times, I think, when the wife is crucial to supporting the family. Maybe the husband's pursuing advanced education or something like that, or maybe he's out of work. But, men, we should feel the weight of the responsibility. We are to be providers. We should see ourselves as the key provider. It means you shouldn't live outside your means. That's why sometimes we have families that move here and several children, they move into the area and they're making more money than they ever dreamed of. And yet after about a year, a year and a half, they realize you know what, that we've made a commitment, the mom's going to stay home with the kids. And the only way we could stay here is if she went and got a full-time job and we sent them off for child care. And we're not willing to do that, so we got to move. And they end up moving. And I never hold them back. I always say, hey, that's, that's a godly decision to make. Well, he also says here it should be a cherishing Love. Notice verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but cherishes it just as Christ does the church. We're to cherish our wives. It means to keep warm. It's used only one other time in the New Testament. That's in 1 Thessalonians 2.7, of a nursing mother tenderly caring for her child. What an interesting picture. We're not just supposed to provide for our wives, men, I mean, the generation before us saw that as their sole responsibility. They went and, and worked, that's all. She should be happy. She's got a house to live in. She's got food on the table. I'm not into this lovey-dovey stuff. Paul says we're to love them not only with a nourishing love, but with a cherishing love. We're supposed to be tender with them. In a way, a, a nursing mother treats her newborn child. I mean... Those of you who are fathers have seen that. You understand that picture? I mean, what a powerful image that is. Over in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, turn over there, 1 Peter 3, 7. It kind of tells us what it looks like to cherish your wife in this way. He says there in verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as she is the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The first responsibility here we're going to cherish our wives is to live with them in an understanding way. Now, you may say, you don't understand, you don't understand my wife, and neither do I. <laughs> um, you know, and sometimes that's true. They're a little difficult to understand at times. But they can say the same thing about us. Literally, this says, living together according to knowledge. I mean, it's something that you have to learn how to do. It's our responsibility to learn that. To live with your wife in an understanding way according to knowledge. Alexander Strzok, in his book, 
pointing out the differences between men and women, writes this. He says, some men don't seem to have a clue about how to treat a woman. They are insensitive to the wife's needs and feelings. They can't understand their wives' frustrations and hurts. They think only of their own careers and self-fulfillment. They exhibit incredible selfishness and callousness. They are capable only of making women suffer. These men need to repent, seek counsel, and study God's word on being a Christian husband. See, the opposite men of understanding our wives and dwelling with them according to knowledge, really seeking to understand them, the opposite of that is to become embittered with them, to become their enemy. And that's why Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 19, Husbands, love your wives and do not become embittered against them. That's a very possibility. I'm sure we've all been at that stage in our marriages at one point or another. Why? Because they're different than we are. So you can either seek to understand their differences and understand what makes them tick and the way they are and the ways that we should express our love to them. Or you can just throw your arms up and go, I don't know what's going on with her today. (laughs) Or become embittered. See, God says we should live with our wives in an understanding way. Notice what Peter says next there. In the middle of the verse, he says, I also want you to show her honor. Show her honor. This is another way of cherishing your wife. It means that you think well of her. It means that you speak well of her and to her. You treat her with honor. I'm sure we've all shared our war stories and our marriages, men. But that shouldn't be the norm. You should never speak without honor of our wives. Too many husbands make their wives feel, well, to be frank, they feel worthless and they feel unappreciated. They feel taken for granted. Too many husbands intimidate their wives. They humiliate them. They criticize them. They put them down constantly. See, that's not, that's the opposite of showing somebody honor. That isn't treating someone in a cherishing way. That's far from Christian. It's literally pagan, if you think about it. Well, Peter gives us three reasons for understanding and honoring our wives here. He says, first of all, because she is the weaker vessel. Now, that's not condescending, ladies. It's physiological reality. But weaker doesn't mean it's a flaw. It's not a a, a flaw in someone's life to be weaker if it's part of the design, if God created you that way. I mean, think of it this way. If you have a fine, you know, you you ladies like to do your little tea things. I'm sure you have your little tea cups made out of fine china. And you look highly on those things, so much highly that we're not allowed to wash them at the teas. Keep your hands off our stuff. Just leave it there. We'll take care of it. Okay. You know, they don't want those things clanking around in the sink in the kitchen there. Um, Why? You know, because it's not a stainless steel mug. That bone china teacup is definitely weaker than that stainless steel mug. But I don't think you want to go to a high tea with a stainless steel mug. It has a purpose. 
See, weakness is not a flaw if it's part of the design. And it was part of God's design. So we need to understand her. We need to honor her because that's the way God designed her. She's not going to think like us. She's not going to act like us. She's not going to respond like us. And we have to be okay with that. He gives us a second reason there because he says she's a fellow heir of the grace of life. A fellow heir of the grace of life. You know, there's no marriage in heaven as we know it here on earth. There's not going to be any marriage. Relationships will continue, but the marriage structure that we have here on earth will not be continued in heaven. She is always and forever your responsibility. She's a fellow heir. She is, put it this way, your spiritual equal before God. Women are not inferior to men. And only for a short time here on earth are you put in a position of leadership over her. The third reason here Peter gives us, and it's probably the most potent of all, he says you better do this because if you don't do it, your prayers are going to be hindered. (laughs) This is a serious matter. God takes these commands very seriously. To live with our wives in an understanding way, to honor them. And if you don't, you know what? God's not going to listen to you. To put it bluntly, a Christian husband cannot mistreat his wife and be a spiritual man. The two just don't go together. In fact, that kind of man will find himself under divine discipline. The divine discipline of God himself. If you aren't caring for her and cherishing her, listening to your wife, then God isn't listening to you. You can't be any clearer or plainer than that. So we need to understand, men, that as God the Father expresses his love to Christ, I mean, that's what he did when even at Christ's baptism, what does he say? This is the son I love. We need to express that to our our wives. We need to tell them that we love them. For years, I kind of said, well, I married you. Of course I love you. Why do I have to tell you all the time? Well, that that, that argument doesn't hold out. They need to hear it. They want to hear it. And, And we need to be willing to share that with them. If you're a husband, then you need to love your wife as Christ loved the church with sacrificial love, sanctifying love, nourishing love, and cherishing love. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, it is a word of conviction, I'm sure, for us as men, as well as the women gathered here, the wives. Lord, we don't claim to rise to this standard. Lord, we're so prone to seeking our own selves and selfishness. We're caught up in our own lives, our own careers, and and Lord, we don't love our wives like this. I'm sure every man could, could admit that today. But I pray that you'd give us wisdom, you'd give us strength. Help us not to be content where we are in our marriages or in our love for our wives. Help us to become servants to them, to encourage them, to commit 
ourselves together on a path on the journey toward becoming more like Christ. The kind of husband that would honor Christ. I pray that if there's men gathered here today who've mistreated their wives in any way, that they would come to you first of all and ask for forgiveness. And then they would turn to their wives and ask for forgiveness. And I pray that you would equip them to be able to change those behaviors that may adversely affect their marriages and their, their, their wives and even their children. I pray you would open their eyes today. If there's any here who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ to realize that you can't do this on your own. This is something that needs a supernatural power beyond yourself because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. I pray that you would help them to cry out to Christ and Christ alone to save their souls. Lord, we thank you for our time together here this morning. Pray you'd bless our time of fellowship across the way. And as we close in a song, pray that you would just uh, take us uh, uh, safely out of here and um, give us a good week next week. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said. Amen. Amen. Let's